Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. In this episode, we are going to cover a powerful process for doing your genealogy research. It's called the Genealogical Proof Standard, or GPS. Now, if you're new to research, you may hear some terms that you're not quite familiar with, at least not yet, but this is the ideal time to start getting familiar with them because it may save you going back and redoing some of your hard work later down the road. A family tree is really only your family tree if it's accurate, right? And if you're an experienced researcher, you may already have some experience with the GPS, or maybe not. But even if you have, you likely haven't heard it quite like this, because my very special guest today is Mark Tucker of the Think Genealogy blog at thinkgenealogy.com. Mark is a software architect by day and an avid genealogist evenings and weekends. And it's safe to say that Mark has a passion for genealogy, and he brings his computing expertise to genealogy in some pretty exciting ways, most recently by process mapping the genealogical proof standard, the GPS. It's a visual aid that will help you navigate your way to a successful family tree. Aha! A GPS for genealogists. In our first segment, Mark will tell us how he got started using the genealogical proof standard, why he created the GPS map, and what it will do for you to improve your genealogy research. Then he'll give us an overview of the GPS and the various tools that go along with it. The reason why I created the map was as beginners, we sometimes get lost. We don't know where to start or, or what the next step is. And the research map takes you step by step. And some people ask me, well, isn't this stuff just for the pros or the more advanced researchers? You know, don't scare the beginners with it. But is it really fair to have somebody start genealogy and get really into it and then two years later say, oh, by the way, you need to go back and cite all your sources? And redo it. And in our second segment, we talk about how the GPS map can be effectively used for breaking down your research brick walls. So we need to, uh, one of the steps of the GPS says that we need to do an exhaustive search. That doesn't mean that we search until we're tired. That means we, we, we have a game plan yeah. and we say, well, what sources would most likely answer this question? And we go through until we feel, get a good confidence level that we've searched enough that we, we've got enough information to, to go ahead and answer that question. Sometimes we get so focused on the brick wall that if we don't focus so much on the wall but focus on the information that we have and what we need to search next, and, and comparing things and using some analysis techniques will help us get through the brick wall, otherwise uh, mm -hmm. answer uh, questions that we wouldn't be able to before. But before we get started with the GPS, let's check in at the mailbox. As you know, episodes 17, 18, and 19 was a series all about how to tap into the vast resources of the family history centers around the world. Well, listener Tina Kelly from the United Kingdom wrote in to share her experiences after listening to the series. She writes, I'm on a roll with all your good words. 
First, there was the info about the Family Search library catalog, which led me to identify the roll of film I might need for an ancestor's baptism in India. Then I went to my nearest family history center in Crawley, Sussex, which is in England. Where else? She says, I live in Burgess Hill, so it's not that far away. As you said, everyone was both friendly and helpful. When asked, I said my husband's ancestors came from Ireland. And they said, oh, we have Irish records here, too. Would you like to have a look? I didn't because I hadn't come prepared as I didn't expect this. And they apparently have all English and Scottish ones, too. I would never have thought to ask about this. Crawley is not London. I know the Hyde Park Center has everything, but I can't get there very easily. So I can see many happy hours being spent at the Crawley Center in the future. They don't, however, have access to the sites you have in the U.S., such as World Vital Records, etc., sadly. Only Ancestry, for which you pay, but then I have a worldwide subscription, which I access from home, as I do for Find My Past and a whole host of others. The gal at the center got a little bit hazy on some of the other subscription sites, but the gist was that although the computers were there, it didn't seem as if they had any free access to any fee-paying websites. I'll have to investigate further. I have to go back when my ordered film comes in anyway, and something else. When I placed the order, she said she thought they had that in, as someone else had ordered it recently. I thought this was a bit unlikely, as what I wanted were year-specific baptism records in the presidencies of Bengal and Bombay. But when she looked, whichever it was, it had already been sent back. Nevertheless, it was all very helpful. Well, there you have it from someone who took what she heard and put it into action. And Tina sent me a follow-up email letting me know that she was told that the subscription websites are available at the London Family History Center, which makes sense because it's likely a much larger center. I hope all of you get out there like Tina did and visit your local centers and write in and tell me about your discoveries. Thanks so much for writing in, Tina. Okay, well, get ready for a fast and furious introduction to the genealogical proof standard. So put on your driving goggles and get ready to navigate your research with the GPS. Last month, I attended the Family History Expo held in St. George, Utah. And I had a chance to catch up with a friend of mine, Mark Tucker, who writes the Think Genealogy blog. Mark has a passion for genealogy and the energy to match it. His first passion is the genealogical proof standard, which is the genealogy research process outlined in the BCG Genealogical Standards Manual. Now, BCG stands for the Board of Certification of Genealogists, and it's an internationally recognized organization that certifies qualified genealogists who meet their standards. Well, the idea behind the GPS is that it provides standards generally accepted in the field of genealogy research. Now, historically, the GPS has been thought of in conjunction with professional genealogists. But more and more, it's being used by family historians everywhere who want to do a good job of climbing their family tree. The genealogical proof standard is really like a process map. It maps out the proven steps that a good genealogist takes to answer their family tree questions. Now, proof is a fundamental concept in genealogy. In order for your research to really be accurate and dependable, each conclusion that you reach about an ancestor must have sufficient credibility to be considered as proven. 
to make sure the conclusions that you come to about your family are accurate, they really need to meet the standards of the genealogical proof standard, the GPS. The GPS consists of five major criteria. First, you have to be sure that you've conducted a reasonably exhaustive search. And the next, you need to have complete and accurate source citations. This means that for every fact, you have the source to back it up. Whether it's the census or a birth certificate, whatever the fact, you need to be able to show where you got it. The next step is to do the analysis and correlation of the information that you found. It's not just enough to find a fact. You have to look at it within the context of all the other facts that you have and make sure that they fit together in a way that really does make sense. And of course, that analysis will sometimes bring to light the fact that there are conflicts when you put your data together. If it doesn't fit or the facts contradict each other, then you're on to the next step, which is to go back and work to resolve any conflicting evidence. You'll want to look for additional resources to solve the questions at hand. And finally, you need to be able to write a sound, reasoned, and coherent conclusion. If you can summarize your findings in a way that makes sense and you can show your proof, you know that you're in good shape and your hard work meets the genealogical proof standard. So let's go to my interview with Mark Tucker, and then at the end of the show, I'll have some great free resources for you that will help you put all of this into practice in your own research. We are in St. George, Utah, and it's a wonderful conference. It's just been a huge turnout. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great, thanks. And you taught your class this morning? Yep, so 10 a.m. taught my class, and now I just get to enjoy the conference. (laughs) That's wonderful. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about here on the show today, was I know that your class is focused in on the genealogical proof standard. And it's a fascinating concept. I went in and kind of went through your PowerPoint that's on your website at thinkgenealogy.com. And wanted to have you share a little more specifics with the audience because I think it's it's a fabulous tool. You're doing some very innovative things in it, and I want to make sure that they know about it. Okay. So tell us about it. How did you get started, and, and what is the proof standard? Okay. Well, uh, probably about a year and a half ago, I started a blog, thinkgenealogy.com. Uh, my sweet wife encouraged me to start, uh, instead of just thinking about genealogy, actually get some information out. So I started a blog um, about a year ago. I was trying to process all the different information out there that the professionals use, whether it be from the BCG Standards Manual, um, Evidence Explained, just what tools the pros use to do their research. And I'm a very visual person, so I decided I'd go ahead and try to to put that all on one big chart. So I created what was called a genealogy research process map. Um, You can go to thinkgenealogy.com slash map and find uh, find it, download it, and just uh, use it in your own research. But... The reason why I created the map was as beginners, we sometimes get lost. We don't know where to start or or what the next step is, and the research map takes you step by step. The example I gave in my course is that I volunteer with the Boy Scouts of America, and the thing that we teach the boys is the best way to not get lost is to always know where you are. Good point. You can't get lost if you know where you are, and so the map is that tool for your genealogy research. Okay. It has the added benefit of when you're talking the same language that the professionals are using, then it opens up a whole new world to you that maybe seems scary at first, but then 
actually it starts to become uh, more understandable. And if one day you actually hire a professional, then you'd be talking the same language anyway. Exactly, exactly. Now, the, the genealogical proof standard, this is something that professionals accredited genealogists are using. It's a process, right? Right. So um, genealogists, uh, you know, probably starting 80 years ago or more, have started to try to make genealogy more of a serious topic. It may be on par with the same uh, things that historians would be, uh, be using. And so over the process of, of years, um, this concept of needing to um, understand evidence and starting to cite your sources. For example, Elizabeth Schoen Mill started more than 30 years ago with this concept of a special citation guideline for genealogists. Which has really become the standard. It has. So evidence explained in, uh, that was released in 2007, 885 pages. Sometimes it's a lot to handle. <laughs> it's a huge. But what I'm trying to do is say, it's, you know, it's not that bad. If we just take it in, in, in pieces, we'll be able to understand it. But there's really a logic behind it. There is. Yes. And uh, it's amazing because I go through my presentation 90 slides in an hour. There's a lot to wow. go through. But I get uh, comments like, wow, that's the first time I've understood the big picture. Or, uh, you know, the diagrams really make things uh, more understandable. And so I'm very visual, and you'll find some, some of the stuff on my blog of uh, diagrams or, or different charts that I try to do to, to help. Be able to because better it's visualize one thing things. when you're talking about it and you're thinking through these steps, but when you can actually see them, I think of them as a process map. Right. Right. And so, yeah, it's showing you if this happens, then you go here. If this doesn't happen, then you got to go back, and and it helps kind of keep you on track, right? Right. Yeah. So I'll give you like the, the the high level. There are six steps on the process map. There's five steps of the GPS. Really, the step that's implied in the GPS but isn't really stated is that we need to define our research goal or objective. Yeah. So that's the first thing we do. Even before we do our research, we focus on exactly what we want to accomplish. Um, you know, it might be finding your great-grandfather's birth date and location. Okay. So it's very something very specific. You know what you're looking for. Then you follow the GPS. It says that you need to search in reliable sources. So using uh, books like the BCG Standards Manual or Evidence Explained will help you understand, well, what does it mean, a reliable source? And you start talking about, well, sources are of two types, original or derivative. Then the next step of the GPS is that you're going to go ahead and cite your sources. It talks about what's the purpose of citing your sources and how does it give credibility to your research or, or make you uh, trust the research of others more than you would exactly. without. Exactly. And that's a big factor, too. So often we go online, we see other people's research, and there's no sources at all. Right. And that's, that's the situation that I'm in. I've got lots of family history work already done, but no sources cited. So I don't really even know what to believe or what connections uh, to put together. So I'm kind of starting all over again, um, this time citing sources and, and, and trying to do it in a professional manner. So the first time you went through and worked on your family history, you weren't really citing the sources. You were just kind of building the tree. And then you realize, because I find that the longer you're into your research, uh, new things come uncovered, and you can actually find that something wasn't true or accurate. But if you don't know where it came from, right. it can trick you, trip you up again a couple of years. <laughs> well, sometimes we've, we think, okay, well, maybe I can go to, uh, you know, for, for example, a database on family search, and I find some information. I'm like, great, yeah. found the answer, move on. Mm -hmm. Well, where did that information come from? A lot of cases we don't know. We don't even ask the questions. We don't know to ask the questions. They could have copied it from somebody else. Right. Right. And so that's what the GPS is trying to help do, is to take things and say, well, this source was was a derivative, and we don't really know who the informant was, and, mm -hmm. and maybe that has less weight than a copy of a birth certificate, for example, that you say, well, that's a, uh, a copy of an original, and, and I can trust that one more than I can copy, uh, that I can trust this over here. 
So after we cite sources, then we need to go into an analysis mode, and we say, okay, this source is original derivative. We talked about right. that briefly before. This piece of information was from a primary informant, like a participant or an eyewitness. Somebody who was really there. Right, or secondary. It was passed on from somebody else. Mm -hmm. Then once we do that, then we can say, well, this piece of information, let's take that and compare it to what our research goal is. Does this, does this uh, answer, completely answer? Does it maybe have the birth date but not the location or just a year? And then that is called direct information if it completely answers the question or indirect if it only answers a part of it. And there's also a, a third one that kind of sneaks in there called negative. There might be a piece of information that you think is supposed to be in a source, and the fact that it's not actually tells you something. It really tells you something, exactly. So, and, and we forget to track those sometimes, right. but they're just critical, aren't they? So I had a question in my research for my great-grandfather. Was he born in 1869 or 1870? Well, I looked on the 1870 census. His parents were there. He wasn't. Chances are, if he was born in 1869, mom would not be without son. <laughs> You know, six months you after he was born. So it would give me uh, something to think about, and I would probably trust the 1870 date more than the 1869. Makes perfect sense. And then any conflicts we have to resolve. So um, we have to know why, well, this year was different. Think through why that might be. And if we can't come up with a good answer, we need to go out and find some more sources um, until we can get all those conflicts resolved, and then we can write a conclusion. It, it's, it's our conclusion at that point in time, and we can move on to something else. But if we find another piece of information, maybe we can open that case back up again and say, well, this strengthens this case, or actually this draws into question my previous conclusion. Tools like the research plan before we start, right. using a research log as we're going through, exactly. um, and actually having some sort of analysis document where we write a conclusion when we're done are tools that we can use as beginners, and it, it's, it's really not that scary. And we're not talking about um, a process for our entire research, so there is no done in that respect. You're really talking about a process that's used for each type of goal that you're trying to set. Right. You might have a thousand different processes that, that you've gone through, right, right, in order to solve different questions along the way. So this is just a, a process that you kind of implement again and again. Right. Particularly so, on brick walls. Yeah, you pick a new goal and you go on it. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times, uh, the trying to classify things as sources, information, evidence, and then trying to break them down into certain classifications, sometimes that might be tricky. But it comes out, uh, we come up with a lot more questions than we would think to ask originally. Yeah. And you start trying to trace, for example, the provenance of a document. Well, this was a photocopy of this uh, digital you know, yeah. document that I got online, which was from a microfilm, which was from the original census. And you start thinking, well, where could have mistakes been made in that process? Or you oh, just start right. thinking about uh, where information come from, came from and who the informants were. So you're in, it really helps keep you clear about the fact that each resource, each document, has a different weight of value and um, legitimacy to it, if you will. Yeah, and I not mean, only that, the information in that. So, for example, a yes. death certificate might have uh, primary information about somebody's death but secondary information about their birth. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. And now back to my conversation with Mark Tucker. It's interesting that it's called GPS, because isn't that what it is? It's really uh, guiding you through this whole maze that we're driving through of our research. Yeah, it's funny, because it was back in 1997 yeah. that they started using the term GPS for genealogical proof standard. And, and so that's, you know, that's the name <laughs> of my, uh, my talk is Navigating Your Research with the GPS. Exactly. And I would think this kind of process, particularly for the brick wall, right. is just a wonderful resource. Because oftentimes the brick wall becomes a much longer 
effort because it isn't going to be clear cut and it's so easy to lose track along the way, isn't it? This keeps you on track. Right. And sometimes we get so focused on the brick wall that if we don't focus so much on the wall but focus on the information that we have and what we need to search next and and comparing things and using some analysis techniques will help us get through the brick wall, otherwise uh, mm -hmm. answer uh, questions that we wouldn't be able to before. I find that the GPS, too, has reminded me when I've gone back and, and reevaluated, kind of took a second look with fresh eyes at different processes that I went through, I realized, you know, I could use another source for that. Right. I mean, this looks pretty good and it seems to fit and make sense, but if I really look at it in comparison to the GPS, I just think I'd be better off to go find one more yep. legitimate resource. Yeah. So we need to, uh, one of the steps of the GPS says that we need to do an exhaustive search. That doesn't mean that we search until we're tired. That <laughs> means that means we, we, we have a game plan yeah. and we say, well, what sources would most likely answer this question? And we go through until we feel get a good confidence level that we've searched enough that we, we've we got enough information to, to go ahead and answer that question. Mark, you said that you just got kind of got really involved in this GPS in the last couple of years. Yeah. What triggered it for you and what kind of a difference has it made to you in your research? Well, I was one of those on again, off again, yeah. um, you know, start, false starts multiple times, just uh, self-taught, lots of mistakes, and it just sometimes got confusing to go ahead and try to figure out, well, what's true and what's not true. And when I started realizing that the professionals were doing it a certain way, mm -hmm. I thought, it must work. It must work. <laughs> there, there must be a reason why you, in order to become a certified genealogist, you need to, to understand and, and do this process. So I really decided that I would try to, to bring it down to the level that every beginner could feel comfortable using it. So once I got that confidence level, then uh, you know, the case study that I, I, I was going through today with my uh, great-grandfather, I, I have a conclusion where I, was, I kept turning and turning and turning and thinking, well, this is 1870, this is 1869, this is Yadkin County in North Carolina, this is Ash County, North Carolina. Which one do I believe? I've got conflicts all, conflicts all over yeah. the place. And I could start to just focus on, well... I can disregard these because of this reason. They carry less weight because it's a derivative source and secondary information. I have no idea who the informant is. As compared to, I have this information, which you know also is derivative, but it's secondary information. But I know who the informant is, and I can trust that more than this you know, this information. It really now that you've you've been putting this into practice, and I love the fact that you have made it visual because so many of us are visual learners. Um, have you gone back and, and seen some of your past research and see it with some fresh eyes? I know for me, yeah. when you've implemented the GPS strategy, it finally really sinks in. Oh, I guess when I find somebody else's research online, I really just can't take it and run with it. I mean, because yeah. if they haven't implemented this, I have to just know that there are very, very likely some problems with it. Yep. You just take what they've done as uh, good clues, Yeah. Uh, keep it separate from your research, and uh, maybe it will help you along the way, but uh, go out there and uh, cite sources and uh, start getting into some originals if, if you can. Mm -hmm. you know, just don't go to online databases. Try to find online databases that have digital images, um, or go back to microfilm, or visit a courthouse. You know, that's uh, something that I definitely... Uh, Need well, some, some more practice than, on. It was to actually yeah. go and uh, do some footwork and, and sources that I'm, I'm not familiar with. And I noticed that at the courthouse where my great-grandparents lived, they still let us open up the big books and oh, see wow. the original um, naturalization paperwork that they did. And I don't know why, but boy, does that just send a chill through you. Yeah. And it's, it, it's even a bigger happy dance than when you find it on a digital um, 
page right there on the website. Right. There's something about being, you know. Well, you that. know that they put their their pen their own pen right. to the paper, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is exciting, and I really uh, applaud you for oh. bringing this to the masses because it not only really improves the quality of the work that's being done. But because of the nature of Web 2.0 and new media and the fact that we're all collaborating online, it's more critical than ever, isn't it? Because it used to be you might get your hands on one or two compiled genealogies, but now it's worldwide. It's anybody out there. And uh, it's a good, one of your first questions could be, so do you follow the standard? Did you have any sources cited, right? right? And one of the things I'm hoping will, will come out of it is, uh, you know, I'm a consumer of online database uh, services, and if I went to one place and, and found, for example, a census record, and maybe it has some bit of information which I guess we could consider a citation, went to some other uh, place, it might not have a citation for the same document. Yeah. Um, another one might have it in a different format, and none of those follow the standard and evidence explained. So right now we have about a swimming pool's worth of information out there on the Internet. It's going to grow to an ocean. Yeah. We have a big problem if we have conflicting citation formats. Some of them don't have any. This is my dream. One day I'll be able to go to a website and I find a document that has my ancestor in it. I click a link. My document is downloaded into my genealogy program and the citation along with it. Oh, yeah. And I don't think we're that far away from that, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> and it just really takes us to, you know, to stand up and say, this is something that we as consumers want. Mm-hmm. We will no longer stand for not having citations online. There's already a number of genealogy, uh, leading genealogy programs that are starting to follow the source templates yes. with evidence explained. Um, another one is actually starting to use this uh, terminology from the GPS as far as sources uh, being uh, original derivative, information primary, secondary, and evidence as direct, indirect, and negative. So all those things are starting to emerge, and uh, I think uh, it's an exciting time. It is. Get a chance to standardize it while we're still young and still right. have a... Um, we're just in the infant stages, really, of online genealogy, that's right. for sure. And some people ask me, well, isn't this stuff just for the pros or the more advanced researchers? You know, don't scare the beginners with it. But... Is it really fair to have somebody start genealogy and get really into it and then two exactly. years later say, oh, by the way, you need to go back and cite all your sources? And redo it. Yeah. No, I saw the faces of Mark's students as they were walking out of class, and it wasn't fear. It was, wow, this gives me um, a framework to work in, and I'm not alone, and there's a logic to it. So you really don't feel like you're out there floundering, even if you don't have all the answers. Yeah. And so I created the map. If you get lost, just go look at the map, and it will tell you what step to do next. And uh, Well, great. You can go look, look at the map at thinkgenealogy.com. Yep. And Mark Tucker, thank you. Um, fascinating as always. Good to see you here. Oh, thanks. Well, there you have it. The GPS is not just a tool for professional genealogists, but it's a tool for you and your research. It actually makes a lot of sense, and it's pretty simple when you break it down into the five basic steps. Number one. Conduct a reasonably exhaustive search. Number two, document complete and accurate source citations. That's an important one. Number three, analyze and correlate all of the collected information. Number four, resolve any conflicting evidence. And number five, write a sound, reasoned, and coherent conclusion. Now, as I promised, I've got some great GPS resources for you. First of all, download Mark's genealogy research process chart at his blog at thinkgenealogy.com. Or you can go to the webpage for this 20th episode and you'll find a link directly to the map. It's a PDF file that you can download. So print it out, 
put it in a sheet protector and keep it posted at your desk so that you can stay focused on the process throughout your research. And Mark has a PowerPoint presentation also on his website called Navigating Research with the GPS that you're also going to find pretty helpful. So to get to that, go to thinkgenealogy.com slash map. And if you'd like a copy of the BCG Genealogical Standards Manual, I'll have a link for that as well on the episode's webpage. And when you buy it through that link, you're also helping to support this free podcast. And so I thank you very much for that. Now, this is certainly not the last time we're going to talk about the GPS on this show. We'll be referring back to this process again and again as we navigate our way through our family history research. But it sure is nice to have a roadmap, isn't it? Now, if you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you are, be sure and encourage your friends to check it out. It's all about sharing what you know and connecting with your family history, as well as other folks doing genealogy research. So I hope that you'll pass this on. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.